Hello and welcome to Landscape Photography World, the podcast for everyone passionate about landscape photography. I'm Grant Swinburne and I'll be your host on this show, talking to landscape photographers about their motivations, likes and dislikes. Dylan Toe is a landscape photographer and general physician based in Adelaide, Australia. Dylan discusses his journey from moving to Australia in 1983 to his present pursuit of photography as a hobby. Sharing his passion for hiking and exploring nature with his wife, Marianne, and family, they started Everlook Photography with a mission to present hyper-realistic versions of the landscapes they encountered during their travels. On their journeys, Dylan captures remarkable images, focusing on presenting nature's beauty rather than creating artistically manipulated scenes. We cover Dylan's introduction to and development in photography, his experiences in capturing landscapes, his preparation for shoots, and his insights into wilderness photography. I hope you enjoy the show. Dylan, welcome to Landscape Photography World. How are you going? I'm good. Yourself? Yeah, pretty good. It's not bad for a uh, Wednesday afternoon. Yeah, (laughs) beautiful. Whereabouts are you? Uh, I'm in Adelaide with the CBD. Yep. And uh, it's where I've been for many years since... 2000 and actually uh, I first came to Australia back in 1983 so I've been Adelaide the whole time. Okay wow why don't you start with who you are and then we can talk a little bit about why landscape photography and what what got you started on it. Sure so I'm myself I'm Dylan Toe I'm actually a general physician um, at the Royal Adelaide Hospital but Photography is a passion hobby, I guess you would call it. And I couldn't really talk about myself without including Marianne, who's my wife, because we started uh, Everlook Photography, which is really the the pair of us. And unfortunately, I say this uh, to everyone, that she probably has the greater artistic talent. Okay. Uh, (laughs) You can see behind me all the other kind of pursuits that she has in terms of other artistic media. Um, but for me, I've been hopeless at all kinds of other kind of artistic pursuits. So basically photography is an extension of my love for going hiking in um, nature and uh, recording what I'm seeing and then presenting it to, to an audience, perhaps in a hyper-stylized way. And it's always been our mission to present a, a version that's um, believable of, of what we've seen. And that's where it all stemmed from because we used to travel a lot. We used to come home and think, gee, our photos are pretty terrible and they don't really represent the the beauty of what we've seen. And so from way back as far as about 2006 or so, we started trying to work on our photographic skills to uh, try and maximise the impact and the value of the images we were taking. And at the time, it was about... uh, when we transitioned into digital media and that helped no end with the ability to to post-process afterwards to bring a vision that you have in your mind and your experience uh, to life on the screen and then ultimately if it makes it to print that's even better but that's the vast minority of our pictures unfortunately okay and so with time i guess the other thing that everlook photography got known for was Around 2011, our first child arrived, that was Charlotte, and then 2014, Mm -hmm. our second child, Jamie. And part of our 
mission statement then was to involve the kids with our adventures. And I guess we became known for how to combine landscape photography with a family holiday. Yeah, and that's uh, a, con- a consistently evolving type of pursuit because the the kids are now becoming more independent and they're actually more able to join us in uh, longer adventures. For instance, we did our first overnight hike in New Zealand recently. So I'm looking forward to introducing them to really wilderness photography, which is my main passion in terms of shooting images. But funny enough, it's, it's the type of images in my portfolio that even though I value the most, probably don't make up the majority of my images because I don't get to go on true wilderness hikes very often, maybe yeah. once or twice a year. Um, but that's certainly the, the, the most that I value in terms of the images I've taken. And I've intentionally left photography as a hobby or a pursuit because in that way, I feel as though I'm not pressured to do anything that I personally don't enjoy about photography. And the great thing about having medicine as a career is that it certainly helps fund the the expeditions and so forth. And also I have to have a shout out to Nissi and I guess you could call that a, a disclaimer. I've been working with Nissi Filters since about 2015 because they saw I was doing a lot of long exposures and it's been a good partnership ever since where I do some things for them and uh, I scratch their back, they scratch mine and replace any filters that I have lost. And as a um, worldwide ambassador, I'm more than happy to promote the high quality products that they have. Yeah. Um, so all, all up, yeah, I feel very free in my photography these days because I'm not constrained with having to think about how I'm going to earn money from the images I take. And so there's no influence on that side of things as to how I actually go around sh- shooting or yeah. even pressure to shoot. So how does it fit into your life? Obviously, being in medicine, that's quite a, a stressful some in, in some cases, but it, it's a usually a high pressure and long hours sort of career. How do you fit in photography in around that? I guess to explain a little bit about that, just knowing a little bit about how you go through training might help explain that. So a lot of the hard yards are in terms of hours done early in your training and so I actually finished all my training in around 2008 right. and so you can then choose to specialize in areas that are more or less intense and I chose to specialize in general medicine which is not very procedural so there's not a lot of after hours work so, yeah. they, so for post 2008 onwards I all of a sudden went from working 100 plus hours a fortnight to pretty regular hours And so I've been able to fit uh, photography into that quite nicely. Um, But as the kids have gotten older and they have their sports commitments and other extra um, curricular activities, it's becoming increasingly difficult to shoot locally. So actually most of the images that I'm taking and presenting on social media and so forth from dedicated holidays and the, the, the pattern of the holiday shooting would be that because I don't sleep a hell of a lot, I um, tend to go out uh, pre-dawn, shoot at dawn, and then rejoin the family for the rest of the day for family activities and sunsets and things, maybe. But most of the images that you see pre-dawn, going into dawn before 
coming back to, to join the family. So that's the evolution of our shot. And so I guess I'd estimate I have maybe 20 to 30 shooting days a year. Okay. So I've just got to try and maximize how I go about doing that. And I do always have plans going into a shoot, but part of the education about uh, self-education about how to go about photographing a scene is how to adapt to conditions as yeah. they arise and how to go from plan A to B to C to Z, really. Yeah. I want to talk about that a little bit later on, but what's your earliest photography memory? Where did it all start? And how, how did that sort of hook get set and drag you along? So I guess in terms of trying to take it seriously, I reckon the earliest time that I can remember actually being dedicated to concentrate on producing quality images, probably around about 2008. So okay. Marianne, Marianne and I got married in 2007 yeah. and we weren't particularly happy with the honeymoon images that we came back from because we actually went to Peru, did the Inca Trail, nice. went to Torres del Pine yep. and really didn't get any decent images out of that. So following that, we made a much more concerted effort to be involved with teaching ourselves not only uh, field techniques, but also post-processing techniques. And I'm very grateful to the uh, Flickr community um, initially. That's yep. where I started uh, the social media platform. And the community then was actually quite different. Everyone was very extremely supportive of each other and through there i was able to get in touch with some of the pacific northwest u.s photographers yeah. and they were able to help me develop my style but in 2008 uh, we had some dedicated trips to tassie to do the overland as well as uh, to china to go to yunnan province and around that time our goal was to be able to come back with usable images really for publication yeah, And we started to get involved with Australian Photography Magazine at that time. And I guess for in, in terms of traditional media, that's when we first started to become more known amongst photography circles to, to mm. begin with. But yeah, that's the origins. But I think in terms of what really put us on the map and my fondest initial memories would have been our 2010 trip where both of us had long service leave and we basically took a three-month holiday to go traveling to five weeks in Iceland, three weeks in Scotland and three weeks yeah. in Nepal. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember back then, but social media was not algorithm-based. It was organically reached. Yeah, what people put up was what you saw. Yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah. And you followed so, someone, you saw what they put up. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And at that time, there were, we were lucky to be one of the early adopters of Facebook and Instagram as a platform for landscape photography. And because we had a huge backlog of images, particularly from Iceland, which wasn't really that visited at the time, that really put us on the map. And by far our fondest memories would have been trips to Iceland, 2009 more as a scouting thing, and then 2010 spending a good five weeks there. Sure, sure. Yeah. So what is it that motivates you now creatively? What is it that 
drags you back to photography for those 30 days that you get to shoot yeah so funny enough it's what drives me isn't the end product the the art of it all and i think that's what makes it sustainable for me because i still love getting up early going for a jog keeping fit so i can do very long in and out hikes so that i can do multi-day backpacking trips and still have the energy at the end of the day to head out and shoot and so forth yep. so i'm just loving getting out there and exploring whatever it is nature has to offer and in particular when i go on trips overseas or even to places i've been before i'm always looking to explore places that i haven't seen photographed and sometimes you end up uncovering gems sometimes they're a bit of a dud photographically but you still had that experience in terms of planning and exploring and that's all part of the process that uh, keeps me going so when i'm going on any trip i do heaps of planning to see what kind of locations are not very frequented try to head out there and it's a real uh, satisfying feeling just to be able to get to those places even if i don't come away with images yeah um, so it, as i said for, for me it's not the end product of producing an image that drives me it's the whole process of getting out there and exploring and it's almost like a serendipitous finding if i happen to produce a, a good image from a, a certain spot yeah and in terms of that i guess planning versus serendipity if you like or um, spontaneous photography sort of spectrum whereabouts do you see yourself fitting are you a planner do you plan your shoots obviously when you're doing it with such a short amount of time you're thinking about where you're going to go if, whether it's for a holiday or specifically for photography yeah i was gonna say locally it's definitely spontaneous if i just have the time i know some spots to go to sure. and i know which places on say for instance Google Maps that I've looked at before that look interesting that I haven't been to. Yep. So if I'm just visiting in the south coast near Adelaide, I'll try to just explore somewhere that I haven't been before. And there's no no real planning there. I suppose if there's a trip planning aspect to it in terms, for instance, if I explain the geography of somewhere like Kangaroo Island, yep. there's a lot of places on the north coast that are good for winter shooting because that's where the right. direct flight yep. will be and a lot of places on the south coast that are good for summer shooting. So okay. if we're happening to visit the Kangaroo Island in winter, I'll probably plan more to stay in places on the north coast and then the right. shoots are more spontaneous from there. But, and, and likewise in summer, it'll be south coast. So locally, pretty spontaneous. Whatever arises in the conditions is what I'll shoot. But in a overseas trip in particular, I'm, I basically create a custom Google map with all the places of interest that I could potentially go to. And it oh. usually ends up being five times the number of places that I'll actually get to. <laughs> so I, I will, and I'll mark whether or not I think that might be a good dawn shoot, a, a sunset shoot. I yep. don't do a lot of astro, but potentially whether or not there's an astro shoot on offer there. And then potentially if, it's somewhere like South Island, New Zealand, whether or not there are any south-facing objects of interest for Aurora and things like that. Yep. So a lot of this is pre-planned out, but it, it all depends like what the weather gives you. And yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. If 
for overseas trips, definitely I do heaps and heaps of planning. Yeah, um, right. And even for the wilderness uh, trips, there's, there's heaps of planning. But when I actually get to the location, then it's much more spontaneous. Like I never really go to a location thinking I'm going to get that shot. Yeah. You know? So but there's no just, real pre-visualization of that specific image. No, not oh, very rarely. I think these days when I'm location planning, what I tend to do is I tend to just look at Google and the types of images that people have created from there. Yeah. Because right. they they tend to be just snapshots and they probably more represent the reality of what you might see there. Yeah. The problem is if you start looking, oh, for me, if I start looking at fine art photography of those areas, I don't know whether people have taken creative license to you know, stretch mountains, yeah, yeah. introduce guys that weren't there, etc. So I'm for the planning aspects of it, I'll certainly be looking at more down-to-earth images. But for inspiration, yeah, for sure, I'd be looking at the types of things that other people have created from that area but uh, that's not really what i'm looking at to plan do you have goals in your photography is there an end state that you're working towards with your photography or is it just something that as you say it's it's a hobby so you just go with the flow and enjoy it while it lasts yeah i think if i could maintain the interest and my body to be able to keep doing these hiking trips and to do the long in outs in the morning, rejoin the family. That'll do me essentially. Yeah. And part of the joy from coming back from a trip is creating the memories for the family video that I've yeah, right. had to create from every trip. So that's usually the first priority when I get back. And then second, I've just uploaded something to YouTube for the landscape photography side of New Zealand, the, the most recent trip that we did. So I think it's not, as I mentioned before, it's not really the production of art that drives me uh, when I go to a trip. Um, sometimes when Nissi, for instance, have a new product, yeah. then I do have a, I do put a bit of pressure on myself to see what images I can create with that new product. Mm -hmm. But it's because like, Nissi selected me because of my style. So it's not like I selected Nissi and approached them. So yeah. whenever I'm shooting for them, I'm really just shooting the way I normally shoot, just with new gear. Uh, yeah, but there right. is that slight added pressure to see if I can come back with something to, to help them promote a new product, basically. And I sometimes ask about that in terms of the inspiration to be creative and experiment with new ideas and techniques. Yeah. Is that the main driver or do you prefer to stay in your lane and just keep producing the very high quality images but the images that you fit within your style yeah look, i see a lot of images that i guess i could put it into two groups there's images that i really appreciate from an artistic point of view yep. and there's images that i aspire to in terms of what i could create by being at the right place at the right time with the appropriate planning and so in terms of what drives me to push myself to boundaries, it's more the latter. So I'm not, for instance, I'm not really looking to create uh, dramatic images, for instance, using focal distance blending and so forth, focal yeah. length blending and so forth, yep. which creates really amazing images and so forth, or time blended images with 
daytime, nighttime blends and so forth. Yeah. They all look stunning, but they're not really things that I look to to create. So for, for me, I'm actually, this might sound a bit contrary to what a lot of artists uh, pursue, but I'm quite comfortable kind of where I am without necessarily want to push boundaries further. And it all comes down to the, the motivation of getting out there and shooting in the first place. Mm. It's just about seeing and experiencing new places or the same places in new conditions. Yeah. 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 How would you, if somebody asked you and they hadn't seen your work, how would you describe your style? I would describe it as a hyper-real representation of the experience I had at that location. Yeah. Okay. And that's always been both Marianne and I's goal. So what we want to do is we want to present something that's believable but accentuated and something that could actually happen. And if we, on the rare occasion that we do take a bit more creative license, then I usually spell that out in the description. Yeah, like right. the, the, the skies from Adelaide is a southern sky in a northern hemisphere landscape or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or I've stretched the mountains because I wasn't happy with the perspective that I got and so forth. I think it's useful to disclose those things because um, yeah. when people uh, when people look at your work for inspiration for the second category I was describing before about aspiring to actually take those images, I, I feel bad if uh, they get there, people get there and all of a sudden it's nothing like what, what yeah. you saw on an image. So, yeah, because that's, that's happened quite a lot to me early on, which is why I developed this almost two categories of uh, looking at images. You put a lot of emphasis on the environment and wilderness in your work. Obviously, that's really important to you. Do you see yourself as an environmental advocate in any way? This is is something that I not necessarily struggle with, but I have frequent discussions with uh, particularly the in Tasmanian photography circles. Yep. Because I think people want me with my work to actively be involved in those pursuits but it's not within my nature to do that like i'm i'm hoping that by just presenting the environment as it is it will inspire people to take an interest in the environment and to also preserve it just by seeing the the natural pristine beauty of what's out there Mm -hmm. Um, but i'm not telling people how to how they should do their hiking and so forth i perhaps naively have an inherent trust that the vast majority of people who see my work and want to visit those locations will behave in a responsible manner. And unfortunately, it's the noisy, unbehaved minority that spoil it for everyone. Yeah, very true. And the question is, how much responsibility do I take for the vast minority of people who do spoil it for everyone? Yeah. And I'm hoping that when I, whenever I put images out, particularly of the wilderness, that the effect it has on inspiring uh, the vast majority to take an interest in nature and so forth outweighs the, the negatives of that small group of pesky people who are probably more self-interested than in the environment. <laughs> you, you mentioned that you have not really focused on the business side of things, but obviously having relationships with Nessie and the Australian photography magazine 
landscape photography magazine, etc. There's obviously people that would come to you and say, all right, I'd love to buy some of your images. Mm -hmm. do, do you sell anything? Do you, you've got a website, as, as I understand, and you sell prints, etc. there. How much of that or how much of that business side of things do you pay attention to or is it just that purely that side hustle for you? Yeah, it is largely a side hustle. A lot of the, we do get some income from photography, but most of those photographic incomes have been relationships that we've developed over the years that have resulted in like a, a bit of a trickle income. Yeah. Uh, for instance, Nissi, it saves me from buying filters and they pay me a certain bit to, to help them with translations because they're a China-based company and so forth. Other companies that we've had experience with, Picatia postcards in New Zealand. Yep. So once again, back in the early days when we visited New Zealand, we became involved with them. And fortunately for us, they've exploded to be a, a really major postcard company. And so we, we get a commission from uh, each postcard of ours that they use uh, to sell. And so that brings a bit of trickle income in. And um, over the years, we've had, uh, based on our uh, social media presence, people have asked us to use our platform to sponsor products and so forth, Icebreaker, for instance, and yep. SanDisk and all that. So there's been little trickles of income that have come organically just through the our presence on social media rather than us actually seeking out sponsorship deals and things like that because there's no literally no pressure uh, on us to do that so we can we're quite comfortable in picking and choosing who would want to use our website because sometimes strange things like watch companies or cosmetic companies will yeah, all of a sudden want to use sunglasses and all those sorts of yeah, and I'm like, I don't really think that suits advertising. That all of a sudden would be quite jarring. I, I keep having female jewellery companies saying we'd be a great fit for your for their brand, and I'm going, no, I don't think we would. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> how? <laughs> I can't see myself modelling that in my in my videos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we, I can't remember the last time we we sold a big print, but we do go through Riptide to sell our prints and they do sell some and we provide them images from time to time so yeah. most of the income and the business side of things is through trickles from relationships that we've established over the years i'd like to move on to where you like to shoot what are the places that keep drawing you back yeah. could be local could be overseas could be anywhere locally there's a lot of uh, amazing seascapes around uh, south australia sure Internationally, we've been to New Zealand by far the most, and um, we've been to the Pacific Northwest in the, the US. So, yeah, there, there's a heap of... I, I probably shouldn't screen share, should I, because this is a podcast. Uh, you can screen share if you like, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but if... Uh, look, around um, the, the south coast of um, uh, South Australia, there's a lot of hidden nooks that aren't necessarily easy to get to, and bit by bit over time, I'm starting to, to get to some of them. And a lot of the time I don't get very good images that come out of them. But once again, the, the exploration process is, is uh, very uh, worthwhile anyway. And uh, in, around Kangaroo Island, haven't been for a couple of years now, but that's definitely a, a favourite spot to, to visit in um, South Australia. 
just because of its rugged coastline and um, wildlife and so forth. So it's uh, that's they're definitely the the local favourites. I'd love to explore more of uh, the Flinders Ranges, and one day if I ever get into aerials, maybe head up to Lake Eyre. But okay, because yeah. I look, I aerials belong in that category where I appreciate it for art without necessarily aspiring to produce them myself. And the reason for that is I'd much rather be spending time hiking, camping, and so forth than sitting in a plane taking photos. Yeah. So that speaks to just having the experience rather than uh, trying to produce images. Um, so that that's, yeah, I, I don't see myself going into aerials, but in South Australia, there's so much potential to be um, doing aerial photography. And every once in a while, I just take uh, Google screenshots from Google Maps as to where might be a, a good spot, but then I've never yeah. then had the desire to follow through and arrange a flight and so forth. But in terms of where overseas, New Zealand is definitely a go-to place for photography, particularly because we don't we just don't get that type of alpine scapes, even in somewhere like Tasmania, which is probably the closest that you have. Yeah, you don't have 3,000-metre-high mountains that are snow-capped most of the year and so forth. Um, so New Zealand's got so much to offer. And even though Australia does as well, the, the difference is that I find uh, New Zealand is so much more concentrated. You know, there's much less commuting to get to between amazing places. Yeah, you don't have to drive five or six hours to get from point A to point B. Yeah, that's right. And so that's one of the problems in South Australia in particular. Yeah. There's a lot of nothing in between great spots. Um, yeah. But I, I found in New Zealand that's particularly handy for a, a family holiday where, you know, I don't have to drive too far at dawn to get to a spot and then come back at a decent hour to yeah. then rejoin for family activities. Yeah, you can pack, pack a lot into a, uh, a, a short period. Yeah. But look, my, my favourite, the, the, the place where I've done the most hiking is definitely Tasmania. And mm. ta Tasmania is the, the place where I, I feel most in the wild so to speak i'm sure there are places in new zealand but because i haven't done the kind of exploration in remote areas to the same extent as tasmania i haven't had that same experience in new zealand and most of what i've done there is hut to hut hiking there rather than camping expeditions because it is overseas and you have to bring all the stuff over yeah and there's just a bit too much luggage when you're yeah, bringing hiring, hiring tents and whatever is a bit challenging mm -hmm. Yeah, Tassie's definitely the Australian location that I go to, and in particular, kind of Southwest National Park, where the yeah, Arthur right. Ranges and so forth. That they're by far that range is just incredible in terms of the topography and the scenery that you get. Yeah. If you could retire at one of the places you've shot, which would it be? I reckon either Hobart or somewhere in South Island. Okay. So those would be the, the the two places I think that uh, if I were if the body was still willing when I retire yeah. <laughs> uh, to be able to explore all these locations and I'm hoping to keep the body in good shape for that then uh, I'm sure I'd be out and about most days of the week doing some kind of exploration. What's your most memorable shooting experience? I, I think for for me there's a morning in the Western Arthurs at Lake Oberon where we had basically Luke and two other photographers, we'd been holed up in a tent for the previous 
kind of 24 hours with extreme winds and a lot of rain and so forth. And so when it cleared up on, on the last morning, it was just magnificent with all the rays of light shining through and so forth. So that's probably one of my um, most memorable experiences there. And I think I've uh, given you a, a copy of that particular image in the folder that we shared. But the other one most recently was being on top of the Eastern Arthurs where okay. um, there was basically a rip-roaring aurora over Federation Peak. Oh, uh, fantastic. Yeah. I really didn't get great images because I had brought just limited kind of focal length lenses. But if you look at Luke, uh, Luke's portfolio, he's got an amazing image of Federation Peak fully exposed in the moonlight with uh, the aurora going in the in background as well. So that, that was pretty magical being up there. Nice. What about horror stories? Uh, look, on the most recent trip, this one's still poignant, um, we were driving back from Milford Sound to Teyarnau and we had parked halfway at a place called Knobs Flat. Yep. Um, that's where a lot of people just stop off to use the toilet. But there's actually a really good waterfall there. Okay. So um, as, as everyone was going off to the toilet, um, I opened the boot to grab my camera bag out and because it was on a slope, half the luggage kind of tipped out. So I was kind of trying to shove in all the luggage. Um, and because I was going to use the camera bag, I, I left the camera bag out. And because I didn't want this to happen again, I thought I'd better move the car. And unfortunately, as I was reversing, I basically ran over my camera bag. Oh, no. Yeah. I was very amazed that there wasn't more damage. Essentially, what happened was that the 14 to 35 that was attached to the camera body was completely crushed. Oh, um, and so I didn't have a wide angle to work with for a bit. And somehow the R5 body that the lens was attached to survived. So that speaks to the durability of that body. <laughs> and also the 100 to 500, which was also rolled over. The only problem that had was getting tight around a 300 to 500 zoom so I, it, it was pretty lucky in the end that, that was the extent of the damage that was caused but yeah as I, as I ran over that bag it's like oh god that's I, I i think i literally heard something crunch and thought that's trouble but <laughs> but i've actually had pretty good health out in the wilderness i haven't had anything really disastrous happen in the field mm. apart from taking some time to work out what camp foods agree with me and the guys who have gone <laughs> hiking with me have uh, definitely known me to have the camp runs. Yeah, those dehydrated packets are not always agreeable, even just taste-wise. No, so I've I've actually gone super basic. And so on all these multi-day trips now, basically all I do is I bring the freeze-dried rice and yep. put, in some, put in some chicken stock, bring some parmesan cheese and eat a good serving of that every night with some jerky and, <laughs> and that's it. It's a bit monotonous, but it's definitely better than having the runs. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's, that sounds like a great lesson, but what has the practice of photography taught you about nature? It's, it's taught me that uh, you, you really, particularly in harsh environments, you, you can't underestimate it at all. So, for instance, using the Eastern Arthurs as, a, as an example, uh, to get in, you park at a place called Scott's Peak, dam and you need to walk about 
36 to 40 k's just to get to the base of the range. Yeah, right. And along the way, there are multiple creeks that could flood. Yep. And so you're in a bit of strife if you go in there without knowing what the weather conditions might hold and bad weather comes in that cuts you off from your exit route and for argument's sake, say you don't have enough food or something like that. Yeah. So it's taught me that nature rules all mm. and you really, you're really at Mother Nature's mercy and you have to have your senses about you. It got to the point where one of our group members who's very experienced in hiking just basically had a bit of a, I think, got extremely anxious at the base of the range just from the sheer isolation of it. Yeah. And so stayed at the bottom instead of going up. So it uh, it's the opposite of uh, cabin fever that, that could happen to you out there. And uh, you've just got to be safe out there and have contingencies. All of us had our emergency personal locator beacons and so forth in case we needed to activate it and so forth. Yeah. So, yeah, learning the just being responsible in nature as well. The, the other kind of adverse thing I think I've learned about nature is that you can see the impact of foot traffic in certain locations that threaten to damage certain locations. Yeah. So one prime example of that would be a place called the Pōkai Tarns in Mount Taranaki in New Zealand. Yep. Um, back, back when I visited in 2014, people like to go around behind the tarn to get a reflection shot of Mount Taranaki. And over the years, that's just become increasingly boggy um, because of the foot traffic, even though it's not a lot of foot traffic. And yeah. so they've had to um, put in... Uh, it's just a delicate environment. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's uh, Nature can be very powerful, but also fickle at the same time, mm. um, a, a delicate at the same time. You try not to damage anything. And uh, if I'm walking in sensitive areas i'll try to avoid using my boots and things like that um, or try yeah. not to go in there at all yeah um, it's always a i think it's always a contentious topic about whether or not you go off trail to get shots but i guess for in those some wilderness people, areas it's difficult when there isn't a trail in the first place yeah that's right and the, there's a minimal trail for instance in the eastern yeah. arthurs and so forth but it, i guess you've got to use your judgment as to whether or not the image is worth one your safety and secondly whether it's worth potentially damaging the environment to get to yeah yeah, yeah i'm interested i guess in those wilderness sort of excursions that you do the amount of prep you talked about having an epurb and thinking about the weather conditions that could be upcoming in the days following when you start out yeah how much planning or how much time and effort do you put into your planning of those sorts of trips? I would say I'm probably moderate because I know some people who go out there without doing a lot of planning. Sure. And then I know other people like Luke who put massive amounts of uh, effort into planning. And other groups I've been with have been putting spreadsheets as to the exact weight that they'd be carrying and so forth. Yep. For me, what I just make sure that I have enough food, enough spare change of clothes to not be completely sodden, and then all the essentials. And then I pack that into a bag and then take it for a dry run locally 
to see how that all fits together, what the weight yeah. is, and then see if I can economize from that point of view. And I'm not really planning for when I'm doing those multi-day trips, I'm not really planning photography shoots and I'm not going there with a specific image in mind. That's definitely more about the experience. And But so in terms of gear planning and so forth, it's a pretty fixed routine now in terms of sleeping gear, clothing, outers, waterproofs, and nutrition and so forth. Mm. Uh, but the minimal kind of photography image planning, but a lot of it for me comes down to physical condition as well. Yeah, um, right. so I do a, I, I do a lot of running locally and running up hills and things like that, because I, I guess I've been on trips where it, it's so tiring to get from location to location with a heavy pack that the temptation really is just to set up camp and stay in there the rest of the time until you got to move again. It's nice to have the general fitness to have the energy to then get out and shoot without forcing yourself to do something. Yeah. Um, and being fresh enough so that you can make a decent fist out of shooting and have the clarity of mind to adjust to conditions and things like that. So, funny enough, the, most of my fitness work that I do at home is really a, as a, a just in case so I, I do my next um, wilderness hike and uh, get to a location quickly so I've got plenty of time to explore once I'm set up. Sure, sure. Yeah. What about the uh, trimming the, the camera bag down? How do you select which lenses, what tripod, et cetera, et cetera? What's your process going through and going through your mind when you're setting all of that up? So for a camping trip, normally what I would bring is just one body a wide angle which is currently the 14 to 35 that i'm using yeah. and then if i'm going to be in the mountains then one long lens and though i would love to bring the 100 to 500 it's just way too big yeah so i settle for using the 70 to 200 f4 which is great quality and it's probably the lightest kind of zoom lens of that kind of focal length that i have so it's, it's those two lenses and then instead of bringing heaps of batteries and things, normally I just bring a decent power bank that will uh, charge everything that I've got, including the, the camera batteries. So for the Eastern Arthurs, which we projected to be a um, nine day, but turned out to be a seven day hike, I just brought one spare battery and charged in between. Okay. Um, try to shoot economically when I'm actually shooting. In terms of filters, I don't bring a lot when I go on the multi-day trips. I basically bring a hard case with a six stop and a polarizer and the filter holder set up and, and that's about it. So it's really a lot smaller than what I would normally bring. And I'm usually carrying that in a front pack so that I can whip out the camera and shoot some images as I need. Yeah, right. Sometimes you can't have the front pack on though when you're doing a lot of almost rock climbing stuff in, in the Arthurs, but in, in general, that's the kind of setup that I have. Yeah, I guess it does de depend a lot on the terrain you're you're traversing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but that's the multi-day kind of setup. But if I'm doing a a, a long in out, then I'll just bring the normal camera stuff because that's still way lighter than the hiking pack that I'd be used to carrying. What do you normally carry in your bag? 
I've trimmed it down to a sling bag with three lenses in usually oh, two two or three and one body and that usually covers the 70 to 200 range yeah i got a 16 to 30 16 to 24 sorry 16 to 35 and a 24 to 105 yeah mm-hmm. yeah which sort of covers that i've also got a a two times converter for the 70 to 200 but i it depends on where i'm going as to whether or not i'm going to take that if i know i'm going somewhere where i'm likely to need that extra reach then i'll i'll stick that converter in because it's a nice lightweight and better than trying to take as you say a yeah a 100 to 500 yeah yeah in, in my normal pack i would have the um 14 to 35 attached to the camera plus yeah. 24 to 70 plus 100 to 500 plus the filter setup and then normally what i also have in my pack apart from the tripod the tripod i'm using a surui 2 series so it's intermediate weight um, yeah. i find the really light hiking tripods too, uh, too light if you, yeah if you're going yeah. yeah if you're going all the way out in the wilderness and you're likely to encounter particularly in mountains very windy conditions yeah i just don't really want to risk having tripod shake yeah. introduced into images because i am taking a lot of long exposures so for that reason i just my usual kind of tripod setup yeah. but over and above that it, normally what hangs off the side of my pack is some kind of waterproof cover as well as some micro spikes in cases really slippery environments to be in, yep. with a preference not to use them uh, unless i really have to because they could yeah. they can scuff up the ground a little bit shooting alone or with other people it depends on the circumstance most of the time i shoot alone and i find the the process of doing that almost what i get out to do landscape photography for it's like a a release from like being in the nature by myself as a solitary experience is a stark contrast to working in huge multidisciplinary teams within a tertiary hospital and so forth so it's like the complete opposite but if I'm going on a multi-day hike, then it is much. I feel much more secure if I'm going in a group, and yeah. if we're, particularly if we're going to precarious places, it just adds that safety factor to be there with other people. And on the last trip, for instance, Luke had some what do you call them? Ultra high UHF uh, radios that we could use yeah, to right. contact each other as well as an added layer of safety. Yeah. So yeah, generally speaking. The part of the motivation is to uh, escape the masses, basically, but in dangerous places or in remote wilderness, definitely a preference for group shooting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> what about the process when you bring the images home? Are you straight into editing and get them? Oh, yeah. The... <laughs> or are you want to let them marinate for a bit? Nah. They're like, like when I give photo talks at, at photo clubs and so forth i the main thing i focus on is talking about the images and the stories that go with them so yeah. that's why i'm super keen when i get home to just have a look at what these images look like on a big screen because i don't bring anything i don't do any editing on the road or anything like that yeah, yeah. i just stay in the camera and and the the laptop's basically used as a backup device and i might take a sneak peek at some of the pictures but there's no kind of proper editing that i'm doing on trips and so forth 
So when I get home, normally what I do is I, I stick the card in the computer and create the Lightroom catalog while I do all the other kind of unpacking and so forth. And then once all the cleaning up and unpacking's happened, I sit down at the computer and start trying to choose which images I want to start editing first. Yeah. Um, cool. And I, I don't, there's no real process as to which image I'm going to do first. It's just a, a question of eventually getting to all of them. Like, I, I think we returned from the New Zealand trip on the mid-October and I've probably edited most of the images that I want to from now yeah. while, they're still, while the experience yeah. is still fresh. And I think doing that ha gives me the advantage of the immediate recall of the experience and that kind of frames how I might edit a picture to bring in the atmosphere that I want to convey from being there yeah. as opposed to trying to remember in the future and then probably just the, the temptation to introduce more artistic elements to the image that weren't necessarily reflective of the experience there. That's one of the things I think may happen if I wait too long to start okay. editing images. Yeah. So yeah, most I've been spending a lot of time editing these recent trip images just to not to get them out, but just because I really love seeing all those memories come to life again and be immortalized in the final images. Yeah, sure, sure. And what does the edit look like, the edit process itself? Is it long and drawn out per image or is it short and sweet, get them up, get them sorted and go through them? Depends on how well I've done in the field. Okay. <laughs> so if there's been a scene where I've captured everything as a single image, which is the goal, so that's why I use filters a lot. Yeah. My, my goal is to be able to capture as close to a representation of uh, how I remember the scene in, in a single mm -hmm. image. So those are often the images that I'll gravitate to first because I, I've got a lot of presets for common things that I do to images that in the form of a Lightroom preset as well as Photoshop actions. And so, uh, a Lightroom preset will be the first thing I go to and then the Photoshop element will be fine tuning things down to specific localized areas of the images that I want to affect and affect change and so forth. So yeah, it could be anywhere from literally a two minute job to if something just hasn't turned out as I had hoped. And I think the most common scenarios where images haven't turned out as I've hoped, places where there are extreme colors. So if you're in a forest with extreme greens, often it will just look pretty weird on raw to yeah, begin with. Yeah. A, lot of, um, a lot of people struggle with their grains when... Yeah, that's right. I've actually got a few actions to help me along with getting the, the desired oh. result of greens because I find I'm doing the same thing quite a bit. And the other one would be the, the very vibrant sunrise that you remember, but then the whole colour palette and everything's completely different when you look at it on the raw file and it just takes a bit of work to bring that back into an image. Yeah. And naturally the images that you've shot as exposure blends, panoramas, focus stacks and so forth, a lot of those come in the down the track basket because yeah, <laughs> it's too much work. But I, um, I always leave my panos for some reason because some of them I'll jump straight into, but mostly I've, I think I've probably got, I don't know, probably about 50 or 60 ones that I know would be good panoramas, but I've yeah. just never bothered to actually stitch them together and... 
start the editing process. Especially if the exposure blend panos. Yeah, that can. Yeah, that that's one of my issues. Is I do do quite a bit of expo exposure blending, and therefore the uh, the the panos they can be anywhere from fifteen to thirty, forty images, and that yeah. just take takes it's, a lot of computing time and effort to pull yeah. it all together. It's and funny getting, that. getting the range when you're doing a pano the, the that range correct so that each layer that you're then going to blend is uh, is a bit of a challenge too yeah it's funny you mentioned that because there, there are some panos i've shot from this recent trip that they're the images i haven't touched yet so yeah. <laughs> i've got a few panos to go from there yeah. do you I'm, I'm interested actually because it might help both of us i'm not sure but uh, do you do your blends first so that you've then got a final image and then uh, stitch the pano together or do you stitch the panos together in in, in their sort of multiple images? I, I do the blend blends. first. Yeah. yeah, I do the blend of each individual file first because... Uh, I've found that to be much more effective personally. But... Yeah, because sometimes when you, when you stitch each exposure into separate panos and try to blend, sometimes it don't align. Yeah, it, it gets um, weird and whacked out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I found. <laughs> yeah. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing photography right now? I think the main challenge that I see for photography, once again, coming from a standpoint of not necessarily having financial interests in it, but I can see for those who use photography as a career, the challenges of, advances in digital manipulation and mm. especially AI coming into all of this because AI is definitely in that first basket that I recommended that I described as in, yeah, they, they look like great images, but it's never something that I would aspire to, to create. Yeah. And uh, I think photography, part of the reason why I got into photography was an element of authenticity to the images that you're presenting. Yep. Even though our mission statement is to create hyper-real images, they are a representation of, of what's out there. So when fiction and reality blur in the extreme, I think that paradoxically threatens photography in terms of bringing it back into the fold of other media instead of standing on its own. Yeah. Because with all other artistic media like what Marianne's participating with watercolors oils pastels etc sure. all of those are you can be as fictional as you like and uh, there's no question as to the authentic authenticity of yeah, the artistic but, license is unlimited is, is limitless yeah. yeah but particularly because photography has been used to for genres such as photojournalism and if it starts to threaten the integrity of that then photography as an art is a bit threatened and yeah. also the other element of it from a environmental point of view is that photography is, is great to be used as a kind of conservation tool in terms of documenting what certain places looked like at certain times yeah as a reference to the future as to how for instance climate change or how the impact of visitation from too many visitors in an under-supported infrastructure can affect a, a sensitive environment. 
all of those kinds of aspects of conservation photography then become almost a moot point if everyone's just willy-nilly throwing AI into the scheme of things and no one knows what's real and what's not. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. I, I think selling, but unfortunately, if you're using photography as a business, then somehow you've got to make money. And if the, the masses out there are going for beautiful AI-generated images, then I don't know how... Resist, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard to resist at least doing that as a side hustle and there comes the conflict of when business is your one of your prime objectives in photography the conflict between doing what you love and enjoy and making it sustainable as opposed to doing what's needed for um, survivability in the field yeah, yeah what about the future of photography where do you see it going i think to some extent the photojournalistic and the authenticity element of photography, I feel it's always going to, to be there. It's just really how much of the market, the AI side of things starts to capture. And I fear that a lot the balance between digital manipulation and AI, will, things is probably starting to already favor that side of photography and the pure art photography styles as opposed to representing some kind of realism. I've seen very prominent photographers even say that realism doesn't matter to them. And to me, that's like a gut punch because that, that's so yeah. against my own ethos of why I got into photography. And look, all power to them. They've got a, they have a different vision of photography to me and, and that's fine. And everyone's got a, if you're in it for a living, you've got to do what sustains yourself, both in terms of artistic fulfilment as well as financial. Yeah, it's interesting. I've got a slightly different take, and I hear what you're saying, and I know some of the photographers that you're talking about in terms of steering away from reality, but I, I think that shift may not be sustainable for very long because ultimately the reason people like yourself and Luke and so forth get out into the world is the experience itself. Yeah. And that in itself, I think, has the inherent value and the recording of what you're seeing in wilderness areas and what people are seeing to, in as you said, recording a location in a point in time that in itself is actually going to be of more value than something that's just completely made up. I genuinely hope you're right. So, I reckon I'm probably I reckon wrong. It's, but, you know, yeah. it's, just, it's probably going to be a pendulum, isn't it? Yeah. When, when it swings too far and people realise the that it may have swung yeah. too far, that it might hopefully go back the other way and more emphasis on photo. Well, I'm pretty sure when you go back into the history of photography, you got people like uh, Frank Hurley and uh, some of the uh, the early photographers, Ansel, Ansel Adams himself as well, one of the most renowned landscape photographers. He used to manipulate images, and and, and as did Hurley and numerous other photographers out there. So it's it's not like this is a new thing. It's just yeah. the techniques of you press, your, you press a button instead of mess around with chemicals and glass plates. 
yeah AI takes it to a whole new level, doesn't it? It does. I, yeah. I, I think the fact that you can feed it your own images, for example, and have it give representations of actual locations to a point with whatever weird and wonderful things you've uh, put into a text prompt uh, yeah. probably changes it slightly because you can imagine pretty much anything you like, whereas the Hurleys and Ansel Adams and so forth of the world had to uh, deal with what they could capture at the time. Yeah, that's right. They still had to actually capture something. That's it, yeah. yeah. How about creative blocks and uh, challenges, those, those mental struggles that everybody has in their photography? Have you used any strategies to stay inspired and engaged or has that inspiration and engagement always been there? It's largely always been there, but look, if, if I come into a block where I don't feel like processing, once again, because it's not uh, a, a breadwinner, I feel like I just take a break from it and then yeah. come back to it when the inspiration's there. So there, I don't try to force things along to keep momentum and stay relevant and so forth. Once upon a time, I, I did put that pressure on myself like early in the early 2000s when Marianne and I were both contemplating whether or not we would branch off more to using photography as a business. Yeah. And then we started doing a lot of things like wedding photography, pet photography and different cross genres and so forth, just to keep the momentum. And then, yeah, it would be a real struggle, for instance, after you shot a wedding and you're too tired, you're not feeling particularly creative, then it's just like a preset. Oh, this one I might edit a bit more. These days, there's really not a lot of that happening because I'm really, when I feel like editing, I'll edit a bunch of images. When I feel like relaxing and just playing computer games with my kids, I can go and do that. If I feel yeah, like right. emphasizing more of fitness, I'll go and do that. I think it's a potentially underrated way to go about photography, to have it funded by a real, a another alternative more secure source of income yeah and providing that it's something you enjoy as well and i'm i guess i'm well, this is it yeah yeah I, if i can imagine it's a really tough situation if you've got the alternative income source that you're not really enjoying then it's a real struggle but i'm very lucky i consider myself very lucky to be having an interest both in photography and also be very committed to the career that I've got because I've got a strong interest in it still. Yeah. What's your favourite thing about being a photographer? I think the main thing about being a photographer is the ability to share experiences after I come away from the fact. So it, the, the primary goal for me is, as, as I keep mentioning, to, to get out there and explore. But once I create the image, I think I, I feel good about having recorded uh, the image for myself, but then if that image can inspire people to take an interest in their locations and go out there and visit and experience it for themselves, then I think you'll get more people interested in nature, basically. Mm -hmm. And so that that's, if people then write back to me and say, thanks for your advice about this, we had a really great time and so forth. And most of the time when that happens, these are responsible people, these haven't been people who have gone out there and trashed the environment and so yeah. forth. So I'm very wary. I'm very grateful when people, I've impacted people in a positive way to, to go and experience things for themselves. Yeah. What about your least favourite thing? 
I think the least favorite thing, as in any profession, is when it starts to get political. Yeah. So I I can't avoid that in my real work because it's my real work, but I can yeah. step away from it in photography. And I think the the major issues I've had largely based around accusations that because I have a relatively large social media presence, though it's not that visible these days. <laughs> that if I put up an image of a sensitive area, the hordes will go there and destroy it. But because other people don't have that following, they're free to put up the same image. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a, it's a strange kind of attitude to have, but that's where I've had most kind of conflict in terms of photography. And that's the justifying why I do things the way I do is probably the, the least favorite thing that I have to do about photography. Hmm. Do you still geotag images at all? I don't geotag them. I'll say where they are. And if someone, it's really just an individual basis when people ask for specifics, whether or not I decide I'm going to, if it's someone, if I look at their account and there's a bunch of stuff that belongs on Insta repeat. Yep and so forth, then I'll be like, look, part of the fun might be researching where this is, or it's in this vague area, have some fun exploring it yourself. But if it's someone who I see is very much into uh, nature and conservation, I'm more than happy to share the locations and even how to get there and best times to get there and things like that. So it's, it is. When I shoot somewhere that's sensitive, I, I tend not to talk too much about it unless as you say you look at the person's profile and you go or it's somebody that i know really well it's i go i'm not divulging exactly how and where i got there but if it's a public place like a beach here in sydney yeah exactly yeah i'm in Collaroy beach (laughs) i don't geotag anything so i look i might just put a rough location like I, i shot a fair few of uh, Dunedin's coastlines recently, which sure. I think there are a lot of images from. So yeah. I'll just location up with Dunedin. So it's that kind of rough area. But where I struggle with withholding information is that a lot of my exploration efforts have really come on the basis of goodwill of people sharing their own images. Yeah. I haven't asked them direct, but they've made their images available online and I've benefited from that. So oh, I feel it. Mm-hmm. I, I feel it very strange for me to purposely withhold information, unless I feel using my judgment that there's good reason to do so. so I think yeah. most of the time I'm actually uh, quite generous with uh, telling people where things are. Okay. I want to bring things full circle. You mentioned uh, the early Flickr days and the the collaboration or the community that was. Around yeah, yeah. Those days. Where do you see community now in uh, in social media? Is there one, or is it everyone out for themselves, and uh, it's a cutthroat uh, place? Yeah. So I think um, one of the problems with uh, social media at the moment is that it's almost too broad, and you're getting too many kind of people from everywhere trying to chime in. But at the same time, the algorithms forcing you into this kind of almost echo chamber where you're not able to see out from where you're coming. And then people, because you never met these people, 
and you don't really deal with them consistently, you're not really that focused on, you're not that invested in their well-being and they're not that invested in your well-being. But the last kind of good community experience I had was, I guess back on in, in Facebook, there was a group of the Pacific Northwest photographers who tried to get a group of fine art landscape photographers together to share their own experiences, put up images for critique and so forth and try to support each other. And so that, that's the kind of environment that is very useful, particularly if you're up and coming into this field to have people who have a shared interest and you you feel invested in each other's well-being. Um, So Ironically, I think if the internet were to be able to localise people to more realistic groups where you can actually interact with each other, that may actually help develop the photographic community more. Yeah. I, think, moment, I think those places exist. They're just hard yeah. to find and they're, they're few and far between where there is, as you say, that caring about each other's well-being. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, for instance, as well as Flickr, I... I joined a, a forum called Oz Photography Forum. Yep. Um, and I've been on that since 2008, I think. And I still go there and share images and try to give critique and so forth. Um, okay. Because I'm... I, I used to be, be a part of that a long time ago. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I think that was actually where I first came across some of your work. To be yeah, probably. And so I still contribute um, because I think I'm grateful that for the role that type of forum had in my development in terms of seeing photography, what it is and the community support that you can get from it and so forth. I try to contribute back to anything that's helped me along in my photographic path. And yeah, cool. And, and I cool. think I'm, I'm in favor of the small communities. <laughs> I should go back and see if my login still works, if I can remember. But, but I think it expires after 90 days. So. Does it? Oh, well, it's yeah. be there then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Never mind. All right. We'll probably have to think about wrapping up. I've got a couple of questions for you. Are there yeah, any yeah. any photographers out there that you think I uh, should be talking to? Yeah, I, I had a look through your podcast list of people you've spoken to, and I, I reckon... I'm going to give a shout out to the people I've gone hiking in Tassie with because I sure. spent a lot of time with them. You've already spoken. Have you spoken to Luke on this? Yeah, podcast? Luke and Paul, I've spoken to. Down yeah. There. The the other chap I went with on the Eastern Arthur's trip was Nathan Mattinson. Okay. Yep. He, he, I don't think he posts a lot on social media, but what he does post is very natural, very high quality work. Right. Always does well in the Natural Photography Awards run by Alex yeah. Nail. So I think he'd be worth having a chat to. And just for a, a change of direction type of photographer, do you know Tim Ray? Yep. Yeah, have you had him on the show at all? Or? I haven't had him on the show. He yeah. was on my list, though. So. Yeah, so I, as I said, he used to come with us on these hikes to Tassie, but now through life circumstances, I think he's gone much more into aerials and is killing it, basically. Yeah, so yeah. Um, having a chat to him about that kind of thing would be good. And from a local perspective, particularly if you wanted to talk about photography as a business, Ben Good would be a good chat to have a chat yep. to because I think he's using that as photography as a 
primary kind of breadwinner for him. Yeah. But he seems to be doing pretty well. So I hope yeah. I'm right about that. But yeah, if, for more of a focus on promotion and making a business out of photography, he might be a good one to chat to. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. All right, I've got my last question, and for most of my listeners, it's the most important one I ask. Yep. Do you like pineapple on pizza? I don't mind it. The kids love it. <laughs> I will not throw away a pizza if pineapple's on it. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm, I'm the same. I, I won't order it, but if it's there and I'm feeling like pizza, it, it, it goes in. <laughs> yep, yep, that's right. No objection to it, but not desired. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much for taking the time tonight, Dylan. It's been wonderful getting to know you a little bit better and learning more about how you do what you do. Where can people find your work? I'm on Instagram on everlook underscore photography and also on Facebook under the same handle. They're the main two places I post. If anyone still uses 500px, I'm on there as well under Dylan Toe. But we have a website, everlookphotography.com as well. So lots of places to, to find us if you search Everlook Photography. But, yeah. Thank you, uh, Dylan. It's, it's been great. No problems. Thanks again for listening to Landscape Photography World. I hope you enjoyed the show. And keep listening because I'll be joined by some great guests in upcoming episodes. You can find my work in this podcast at grantswinburnphotography.com. I'm also on Vero, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram and Facebook. I'm Grant Swinburne. Hope to see you out shooting soon.